since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, we have it recorded for us, right, here in Genesis chapter 3. And since that particular time, whenever that was, whenever it happened, since that time, people have been looking for utopia. Utopia. Man has been searching for a place with no problems. And man is going to figure this out somehow, right? This is the thinking of man. We're going to figure this out. We're going to figure out how we can have this place called utopia. Utopia. The term utopia was coined from, uh, from the Greek language by Sir Thomas More for his 1516 book, Utopia, describing a fictional island society in the Atlantic Ocean. The word comes from the Greek, from two root words, and it means it actually means no place, because <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fictional location. It's a fictional place. It describes any non-existent society described in considerable detail. The, the term has, has kind of broadened its meaning over the centuries, and so the we have many meanings now. We, we usually use the word to describe a non-existent society that is intended to be viewed as considerably better than contemporary society. So utopia, better than this, better than what we have. Utopia, in that sense, is a perfect place that has been made so because there are no problems. Utopia. There are many versions of utopia. There are socialist utopias, capitalist, monarchical, democratic, anarchist, ecological, feminist, patriarchal, egalitarian, higher, hierarchical, racist, left-wing, right-wing, reformist, free love, and many more utopias. Everybody has a, an idea about what utopia might be. The problem is that these utopian ideas have, what the problem is, is that they don't take into account man's fundamental problem. The problem that, that, that man has in trying to bring anybody to a utopia is that they never do, they fail to address and really aren't equipped to address man's fundamental problem. What's that? It's called sin. Yeah. Sin. Sin is the problem, and this is where it started in Genesis chapter 3. Of course, it started with the fall of, of Lucifer and a third of the angels, and then here in mankind and humankind, we see it take place as Adam and Eve sinned against God, taking that forbidden fruit. So these utopian ideas, they don't take into account sin, and they don't have a solution for sin. And so ultimately, all those ideas are going to fail and fail miserably. Fortunately for man, God, our creator, does have a plan. He does have a plan, and his plan accounts for, not only does it account for sin, it deals with sin in the way that it needs to be dealt with and giving man the opportunity to come back to God and be in right relationship with him. So for this reason, there is hope. There is hope for humanity, and there's hope for you and me tonight. Tonight we're continuing in our Genesis study and we left off, it was, it was a great cliffhanger last week. You know, like those old, you know, like the old uh, TV shows that would uh, be, you know, probably like your Friday night shows or your Saturday night shows, you know, the hour-long versions, the hour-long variety. And then you'd watch the whole thing, it would be an hour long and you were just waiting on pins and needles and then those words, to be continued, would come up <laughs> on the black. And then you're like, ah, oh, I got it, I got it. You know, and you had to wait a whole nother week. It wasn't like you could just go on Netflix or YouTube or something and f figure out what happened. You literally had to wait seven days to find it. This generation knows nothing about that. They, 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 they don't even know what I'm talking Pastor Charles, what are you talking about? Well, we'll have to talk after, after the service. But anyways, we left off, and it was a cliffhanger because we left off with God calling out to Adam and Eve. He called out to them. He came to them. It said the Lord God came walking in the midst of the garden, and he, not only did he come walking in the midst of the garden, but he came 
calling them, calling them. And he said, where are you? Where are you? And so that's where we left off. The Lord, gave, Lord God walking in the garden to find them. The principal message from last week's study was that God is the one who goes out after man. You see, religion, man's religion, is really their formulations, their formulas about how man is going to reach out to God and appeal to God and be good enough for God. But you see, Christianity is different because the Bible teaches us that, no, 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 we don't really go after God. God first goes after us. He first went out to Adam and Eve in the garden to find them, to call out to them, where are you? So that's what we learned last week, that he's the hound of heaven. He's the one that he's going out after us. And not only does he go out after us, he's got a plan to deal with our condition, to deal with the situation. He has a plan to fix the situation. He has a plan to redeem man from his fallen, sinful state. And so tonight, we're going to do this. We're going to identify the problem. We're going to look at what actually becomes the curse of sin, and then we're going to ultimately look at the hope for humanity that's found, actually, snuck into the middle of the curse. And so we're going to take a look at that. So let's identify the problem. Let's pick it up. Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. It says this. Well, let's, let's, let's pick it up, verse 9. Then the Lord God called. We ha- yeah, because you have to pick it up at the cliffhanger, right? You have to, that's how you do it. See, I, I, I forgot how to do this. I'm not a TV producer, but this is, yeah, you have to go back and give that little 15-second thing. Last week... <clears throat> Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's stop right there. Identifying the problem. We've got to identify the problem. If you're going to solve any problem, if you're going to have a solution to a problem, if you're going to have a utopia, you better find man's fundamental problem. And that's exactly what God does. He identifies the problem. He comes out calling out to Adam, where are you? Where are you? Now, you know, if you're, if you're a thinking person like me, you're thinking to yourself, well, certainly God knows where Adam is. I mean, he's all-knowing. What, is God really asking a geography question here? I don't think so. I don't think it's geography that he's asking. He's not asking geographically, Adam, where are you? Well, I'm over here behind the second palm tree, behind the, you know, no. Spiritually, where are you? spiritually, where are you? And this is the question I think that every person needs to ask of themselves, and they need to come to this question because it's a serious question. Where are you? Really, where are you in your life? And this is the question that the Lord would ask to you. He would ask to you, where are you tonight? Where are you? He knows where they are, but they're hiding. And he, and, and he wanted them to see that we can't hide from him that we can't hide from the Lord. And he wants us to bring, he ultimately wants to bring us out of that hiding. He wants us to bring, bring us out of that place of, of fear and shame that is kind of the byproduct of sin. And so he, he's wanting to deal with that. Now, Adam makes an admission. He says, I heard your voice and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. He said, I was naked. I was afraid. I heard your voice and I was afraid because I was naked. Now, Adam and Eve, at this point, they knew they were naked. Now, they were always naked in that sense. They were, they were made, you know, they were, they were naked. We talked about this already, right? We, we covered this ground. They were naked. 
and they felt no shame. Remember that verse? And remember, I had us pause on that verse. I said, remember this verse. The man and the woman were joined together and they were naked and they were in this state of, 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 of just kind of glory, of perfection, uh, of just the wholeness of creation, really. It was, that, it was a snapshot, really, of that picture. And now, having a conversation with the Lord, I heard your voice, I was afraid, because I was naked. So I hid myself. They knew they were naked, but they knew, they knew something had changed. They knew something had changed. And they, they knew. And, and each person should kind of look at where they are. The question that God asks is, where are you? And here's the answer. I, I hid myself. I was afraid. I was naked. These are the, these are the types of answers, really, that are the correct answers. You know, it's not all this other stuff. It's not all, all this philosophical mumbo-jumbo and this and that. And, well, I believe and I believe. No, no, no. You're afraid. You're, you're in sin. You're, you're, you're hiding. You're hiding from God. And God is coming after you. And he's calling you by name. And he says, where are you? And, and, and Adam says, I, I heard your voice. And, and I was afraid because I knew I was naked. And I hid myself. The Lord answers, who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I commanded you that you should not eat of? Their sin caused an awareness of their nakedness. They, they were naked, but now this sin, this thing that happened, the thing that they did has now brought this awareness that they were naked. They were naked all along, but they were further clothed with the glory of God. They had what, the, what we learn in the Old Testament, the kabod, the kabod of God, the, the glory, the light. They were made as the image of God. And wow, when they sinned, when they departed from God, when they disobeyed the Lord, whoa, some, something, something's different, something's different. I, 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 we're naked, we're naked. Let's get out of here. And they hid. And remember last week we talked about that. They, they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. And so God is going to need to, to do something about this nakedness, this shame, this fear. He's going to do something about it. He's the one. They're, they're trying to hide. They're trying to clothe themselves. But God is ultimately the one that's going to have to do it because these solutions aren't going to cover, they're not going to reach up to what, 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 what the heights that they've fallen from. These fig leaves aren't going to cut it in terms of what they need for the heights from where they fell, the glory of God, the kabod, the, 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 the light of God all around them. They're going to need something else. They're going to need covering from the Lord God, and it is God who covers us, amen? It's God who clothes us. It's God who brings us back to that place and, 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 and brings us back from the depths of our sin and our shame. And, and, and don't, don't any of us ever forget it because it's not just that the sins have been blotted out, but we've been brought back from the shame. Because why? Because he's covered our sin and he's covered our nakedness. He's covered our shame, amen? And he's done an incredible work. The glory of God is what clothes us as believers. You say, well, how is God going to cover us? How is God going to clothe us? God clothes the believer. Did you know this? Yeah, the Bible teaches us that God, if you're a believer tonight, you've been clothed. You've been clothed. And your nakedness and your shame has been covered. How's that? Because the picture of the believer in the New Testament, well, really from the Old Testament, it's really from the Levitical priesthood. They had the white linen robes. And so the believer is that one that is, it's, it's the white linen robes that you see whenever heaven is depicted, that's the believer in, literally clothed in the glory of God once again, brought back from the state with, from which they had fallen, brought, brought back to that place in that white robe of his righteousness and of his glory and of his light. Amen. Now, God is wanting, he's, one commentator said this was the, the, this was the arraignment, <laughs> you know, of, of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve is standing, they're standing before the, the righteous judge of the universe. And here's the arraignment 
of the situation. And, 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 and God is wanting to bring them to a place. He's, we're going to come to that place where, you know, at an arraignment, that's where you say, um, how do you plead, right? You know, here are the charges against you. How do you plead, right? right? Guilty or not guilty? Guilty or not guilty, right? So this is where we're getting to. God is having, we're having this arraignment and God is wanting to get them to that place of acknowledgement of what they've done, acknowledging their disobedience. Now they, they've already acknowledged the obvious. What's that? We're naked and we were afraid. But we gotta go a step further. Did you eat of the tree? That tree that's in the midst of the garden, the one that I told you that you should not eat of, did you eat of that tree? What did Adam say? The woman you gave me, Lord. The woman you gave me, she gave to me of the tree, and I ate. Now, I know commentators have gone nuts on this for decades and hundreds of years probably. Adam pointing the finger. Then the woman. God turns to the woman. What is it that you have done? The serpent. The nakash. Deceived me and I ate. So Adam, the woman that you gave me, she gave it to me and I ate. Woman, what'd you do? Well, the nakash, the serpent... He deceived me, and I ate. Now, let me, let me just interject into the midst of all the commentaries. I read this over and over and over again, and you know what stuck out to me this week? They both said, I ate. Look at it. I ate. I ate. That was the question. Did you eat of the tree? that I told you that you shouldn't eat of. Look at the text. Look at the sentence, brothers and sisters. They both said, I ate. I ate. Now, you can say, you know, you can chime in all the woman you gave me and they're passing the buck and all the rest of it. They spoke out of their mouth. I ate. The woman said, I ate. He deceived me, but I ate. The woman you gave me, she gave it to me, but I ate. I ate. This is kind of where God wanting to bring us. Did you eat of the tree that I commanded that you should not eat of it? Did you? Yeah, I ate. I ate of the tree. Remember last week we pointed it out right here. This is the problem right here. The bite out of the apple. We had to have a company in the 20th century come along to tell us, to show us, to describe for us what the problem is. And yet, these are the guys that are going to bring a utopia to our life. <clears throat> I ate. So he turns to the serpent. Turns to the serpent, the Nakash. Now, if you, I can't go back into the whole thing on the Nakash. If you need to go back to that study last week, go on to the podcast, listen to that. I do a whole thing on describing the serpent and what we're really dealing with. Was it a snake or was, it, was there something else that we're really dealing with? And you have to really get into that study. But we're going to continue to refer to him by the word used here in Genesis 3, okay? And so you can go back to that study. But the Nakash, he turns to the serpent, to the Nakash, and he hands down to him the curse of sin. Now, you don't, you notice that God does not say, well, what'd you do, ser serpent? He just goes right, okay, we're going to deal with you now. We're going to deal with you, the kosh. And he hands down the curse of sin. So let's pick it up, verse 14. Verse 14, it says this, So, God, so the Lord God said to the, the serpent, the Nakash, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." The curse of sin. 
You see, look at that. He goes right down. He doesn't question. There's no questioning of the serpent. There's, 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 I guess there was no arraignment needed. <laughs> you know, God knew that he was guilty. The Nakash knew that he was guilty. And so because you have done this is the wording. Because you have done this. And we're going to get into the curse, the curse of sin. We're only going to get into this first part of it tonight. So the, the latter two parts are going to be next week. But the first part of it, as it pertains to the serpent, to the, to the Nakash. So the, the curse of sin is handed down threefold. To the Nakash, to the man, and to the woman. Curse directed toward the, toward the Nakash, a curse directed toward the woman, and a curse directed toward the, the man. Now, the Nakash, the serpent, has already been rebellious against God. There's already been a breach. There's already been um, an unfaithfulness. There's already been this rebellion that has happened against the Lord. And now God is, is going to curse him because of this specific thing now. Because now that you have done this, now we're bringing this specific curse. Because you have done this in deceiving the woman into eating the fruit and she gave to her husband and he took it and he also ate, you're cursed. You are cursed more than the cattle and more than the wild beast. Now, remember we talked about that when it said in verse 1, it said that the Nakash was more cunning than any beast of the field. And remember when we talked about that there, was, there could be an incorrect inference because it said that the Nakash was more cunning than the beast of the field, that the Nakash was a beast of the field. And so we, we've got to be careful there because look at this. You're, you're cursed more than the cattle. You're cursed more than the wild beast. So the wild thing and the domesticated animal, you're cursed more than them. The curse to crawl on the, on the, on the belly and, and to eat dust. It's a curse to crawl. It's a curse. Um, it's, it's really a curse of being cast down. The, the Nakash is cast down to the earth. In that sense, your, your domain is now the earth. Your, your, your domain is here. You're going to, to, to the, it's, it's kind of like that picture of, you know, you're the, on your belly. You're going to be eating dust. He's rebelled against God, and now he's become the adversary and the tempter of man. And he's cast down, he's truly cast down, and to eat dust, and to eat dust. He will eat the bitter, cursed dust. Now, what I'm going to bring out here, this, you probably have, I, I didn't even know, I, I found this when I actually taught through the book of Numbers, and I've read Numbers, and when you're, going, when you're teaching through the Bible verse by verse, it's, 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 it's a wild ride. <laughs> Amen? Amen? And so, Numbers chapter 5. Um, you don't have to necessarily turn there, but I want to talk to talk, talk to you about what you find there in Numbers five. In Numbers five, there is a law, and the law that is given there is about how a man would handle his wife if he suspected her of being an unfaithful wife. If he if she had gone uh, gone astray and gone and um, and as the text there, Numbers five graphically says, laying with another man. Okay, so let's, let's, let's be real with the text here. So if a man were to suspect his woman of being unfaithful, his wife specifically, there was this law of what he was to do. According to Numbers 5, a man would bring his wife to the priest, to the tabernacle, and there would be a grain offering that would be given, and then there also would be created this concoction of water. Okay, so they would the priest would take this water, and then here was the instruction in Numbers chapter 5, verse 17. And this is how this relates. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Okay, here, here's what was happening here. Okay. The tabernacle, and I don't have time to get, get lay a, 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 a lengthy groundwork here, but the tabernacle really was the dwelling place of God. Tabernacle means dwelling place. It's the dwelling place of God within the midst of the people. 
But it also, that, that was what the Garden of Eden was, okay? So remember, we talked about last week when the Lord God came walking in the cool of the day and he heard them walking. This was, the, the text seems to elicit this idea that, that this was not an unusual occurrence, that this is something that they were familiar with. This is Eden, the garden was where God dwelt and, 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 and ruled in that sense, okay? So inside the tabernacle, if you go and read, and there's lengthy passages in Exodus, the inside of the tabernacle was basically like being back in the Garden of Eden, okay? That's what it was. There were the cherubim sewn on the interior linens of the, of the, the fabric of the tent, and there were palm trees, and there were all the, 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 the robbery of the high priest. There were the bells and the pomegranates and all that. It was literally like when you stepped into the tabernacle, you were stepping back into, the, into Eden, Okay, and so here, what, what God is saying is, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go into the tabernacle, and you're going to get some dust from inside that tabernacle, and you're going to put it in this holy water in a pitcher, okay, and you're going to create basically what the text says, bitter water, bitter water. And then they were to take these curses, there was the curses a part of this, and they were to... Uh, shave those off. You can read the whole passage if you want to, but they, they were to shave those off and put that all in this concoction. There's actually in the book of Revelation, this idea about a, um, the eating of a scroll and it becoming bitter. So anyways, I, I, this probably ties into that somehow. But um, because the bitter water would then be drunk by the wife, and if she was faithful, nothing would happen to her. But if she was unfaithful, her, her thigh would rot and her belly would blow and the, the, there would be this, it would, the curse of that would come upon her. So there was a curse of unfaithfulness and it was directly derived from eating the dust of the garden. And so let me take you back to Genesis 3 and now God is, is, is saying to the Nakash, to the serpent, you're going to be on your belly and you will eat of the dust and that dust that you eat of will become a bitter rot in you, serpent uh, Nakash. And isn't it true that that, ha that curse has come to fulfillment? That the, the, the Nakash, the enemy of our souls, the Satan, the adversary, has become a rotten mess of adversary against the Lord. And the curse has proved to be true. On your belly you will go and you will eat of the dust. The dust proved the unfaithfulness in the curse. And just remember, when you come across passages in the Bible, you may be doing a reading and whatever, and you say, what on earth does this have to do with anything? It's in there for a reason, amen? <laughs> it's all in there for a reason, and it has a purpose, amen? So, the water would become bitter water, and it would bring this rottenness. Now, then there's the second part. You will be on, on the ground, you will eat the dust, and that dust has become a, a curse and, 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 and rotted and basically proven the curse. And then we come to the second part, the second part of this curse. God says that there will be enmity between the seed of the Nakash and the seed of the woman. There will be this enmity. This is the beginning of what really you can call the battle of seeds. The battle of seeds. And if you really want to understand what happens in the rest of Scripture, okay, you need to understand what's happening in this verse, Genesis 3.15. This is the absolute found one, perhaps, and it's tough to say this about a particular scripture, okay, so I'm, you know, being careful here, but perhaps one of the most foundational scriptures in all of the Old Testament in terms of un understanding and unlocking the ideas and things that happen throughout the rest of all of scripture, because here is where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. There will now be this battle royale, this battle, this war really. And it's not only gonna it not only gonna be again with the serpent and the, the Nakash and the woman, but he says, and between your seed 
and her seed, between your seed and her seed. And so really, there's set up this battle of seeds, this battle of seeds that is, has existed. And once you kind of put this key in to understand, it really, you begin to kind of understand a lot about what's going on. Because there's a battle going on, there's a war. And it's a battle that was described right here by God in the curse in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. Now, there are, there are two seeds that are in the earth today. And there's, there's a literal meaning and there's a spiritual meaning. Specifically, we're going to concentrate on the spiritual Spiritually, really, you're either a seed of God or you're a seed of the serpent. This is what it ultimately comes down to. So there's a, a battle, there's a war between those who are gods and those who are of the enemy, those who are of the Nakash, those who are of the serpent. Jesus actually talks about this in one of his parables. And if you've been around for a little bit, you remember when we went through the kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13. And uh, this is where Jesus addresses this. And actually, uh, you know, when you look at the parable that Jesus taught, he, it really kind of unlocks a lot and explains a lot. You want to find out what Jesus thought about this? Well, this is what happened. This is what he told in, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, uh, really, which talks about two seeds being planted in the, in the earth. Uh, if you want to, you can go to Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to pick it up at verse 24. It says this, and another parable he, he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to him, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, well, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, in that particular chapter, there's, a, there's, a couple, there's several uh, parables there. And two of them, thank God, right? Thank God Jesus actually interprets the parables. A couple of them he doesn't. But on this one, thank you, Jesus. You gave us the commentary. We don't need any other commentary because you gave us the commentary on what you just said. If you skip down in that chapter, skipping down to verse 36, here's Jesus' commentary on the parable that I just read, Okay. Then Jesus sent the multitudes away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and he said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Well, there's the interpretation. You say, well, what did he mean? What did he, let's come up with an interpretation. Let's, come, let's write a new commentary. Let's come up. No, no, he just said he actually just assigned a value to every single thing in the story. Right. Who has done this? Why are these tares here? Did you not sow good seed in your field? Yes, I did. But an enemy has done this. The devil is the enemy, and he sowed his tares into the field, which is the world. And so the end of the age, the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels who go in and reap, and so on and so forth. You have the rest of the interpretation. Now, so you have the two seeds. You have the wheat and the tares. You have the sons of God, sons of the kingdom, as Jesus would say, and sons of the devil, sons of darkness. And Jesus, did you know that Jesus called some of the Pharisees, he called them sons of snakes? Yes. He said, you sons of snakes, 
if, if, if God were your father, then you would receive me, but you're sons of snakes. You say, don't call anybody a name. You sons of snakes. <laughs> Jesus style. Or as we know it, brood of vipers, right? Same thing. Same thing. Let's be honest. Same thing. A brood of vipers, sons of snakes. So what was Jesus saying? Jesus in the parable, Jesus in his name that he called some of the Pharisees, he's talking about that battle of the seeds that exists here on planet Earth. That there's a battle of seeds, and this thing is going and going and going, and it's been going since that moment, and there's going to be a time. It's going to play out. You know, the, 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 the good angels, the, 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 those in the divine council, they came to him, and they said, should we go in and, and, and pull out these tares? No, no, no. Leave them in there. Leave them in there, and we're going to let it go until the time of the end. So for whatever reason, and we can ask God when we get there. I don't have exactly that reason. That's one of the things I think we're going to ask him. Why did you do it the way you did it, God? He says, lest you tear out some of the wheat with, as you go in and get the tares, leave them in there, and at the end, I'm going to sort it all out. Amen? And this is exactly what the Lord does. He's the one who's going to sort it out. This battle of the seeds. This battle between them. And this will play out, this battle the seeds, the wheat that's growing, the tares that are growing, this battle that is waging on the earth. It's going to continue to play out. And it played out and played out and played out. And it's going to play out all the way till the end. Until you get to where, where Revelation tells us, yeah, the dragon, the, that serpent of old, yeah, that, that serpent, the Nakash, I'm going to deal with them. And he, he's, going to be, he's going to be thrown into hell. Because that's what it was prepared for, the devil and, and those that followed him, those who were of that seed. So it's going to play out until then. What we see next in the verse, we see the battle of the seeds, but we see it coming to a particular climax in that last part of verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What we see right here in these last two lines of verse 15 in Genesis 3 has been called by theologians the proto-evangelium. The proto-evangelium. When, whenever you see the word proto, that's a word that means first. Evangelium is the gospel, right? The good news. And so what theologians have called this throughout the, the centuries is the first gospel. This is the first hint of the gospel message in the Bible. Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium. The first gospel. Now, it is a veiled depiction. I mean, if that's all we had, it'd be like, whoa, what's this mean? He will bruise your heel, you will crush his head. Mm, it's a riddle. How are we going to figure this out? Thank God we have the rest of the Bible, we have the rest of history. As we look back now and we can see and we can look at the proto-evangelium and we can see what that first gospel actually was. But this was God giving the curse, and he's giving a curse and talking about this battle of seeds that's going to exist and is going to continue to play out till the very end, but there's a, there's a gospel message, there's a good news right in the center of it that we have to take a look at. It's a veiled depiction of what's going to happen. There will be a seed from the woman's lineage that will go head to head with the Nakash, with the serpent. There, there is a seed that will come from the lineage of the woman, and, and this one, this seed, we know him as the rest of the Bible plays out as the Messiah, the Mashiach. And so the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to go head to head with the Nakash. And now the Nakash, he says, you will strike his heel. He, you know, 
The heel kind of, in ancient literature, I mean, I, you know, you, you almost can't read this without thinking of like the Achilles heel or something like that, you know, and the Achilles. It, so in ancient literature, it was the, like the, the, the heel that like, the, 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 it was like that devastating blow, right? And so the Nakash will land what will appear to be a decimating blow, a devastating blow, but in it, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, the Nakash. And so you have this good news. And as the Bible plays out and as the history plays out, this is exactly what happened on the cross. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And that was the plan. This is what happened on the cross. The, the striking at the heel, the crushing at the head, that was what was planned. This is what was laid out. So when you get to the cross, and there are many who look at the cross and, and say, oh, wow, you know, oh, and they're feeling sorry. No, no, no. It wasn't something that happened to Jesus. It was, it was something, it was a plan that was accomplished by Jesus. The, the cross was not something that happened to our Lord. The cross was something that Jesus did on our behalf. And that, the Nakash, thinking it to be a decimating blow, became a head-crushing blow to the Nakash. Now, I brought this up at Christmas time when we were talking about Messiah being born, and I was talking about there was no place in Scripture where the words Mashiach, which is Christ in the Old Testament, uh, Mashiach is the Hebrew, and suffering. There was no, there's no place in the Bible where Mashiach, Messiah, and suffering are combined. And when I first came across this, I was like shocked. I was like, no, 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 that, that's wrong. I mean, that's just wrong on its face. And the first thing you want to say is, well, wait, what about Isaiah 53, right? The suffering, not the suffering Mashiach, the suffering servant, the suffering servant. So even in, in Isaiah, there's, there's, a, there's kind of a veiled suffering servant, but not that connection with the suffering Messiah, we find out in the New Testament that Paul actually explains to us why that that was hidden as a mystery in the Old Testament, only to be on this side of it to look back and connect the suffering servant to the Messiah, to the seed of the woman that struck a blow to the head of the Nakash. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, and here's where Paul makes it plain. He says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. What? A mystery is something that was hidden, but now is revealed. Okay? We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the, the Lord of glory. Yes. Now, I don't have time to stop here and go into what everything that Paul's talking about here. But the reference here of the rulers of this age are literally the rulers, that the rulers, the principalities and powers, the Beneha Elohim, the, the defiant, rebellious sons of God that at Babel, and we'll get to that when we get to chapter 11, but he turns the people of the world over to the sons of God. And then in the very next chapter, he selects a people. He selects a man, Abraham, out of Ur of the Chaldees to have his own people, to have his own nation, his own heritage within the earth. So it was hidden. It was a mystery. But now we're looking at it on this side and, and Paul's going, look, this was all hidden in the Old Testament because if the, if the rulers of the age, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. Now listen, the enemy took the opportunity as, as the Messiah came. Of course, we had that. We talked about the temptation of Christ last week, right? So the, the Nakash, the, the enemy took the opportunity that Christ gave him. And I said that exactly the way I just wanted to say it. The serpent took the opportunity that Christ gave him. Why? Because Jesus, the Bible teaches us that Jesus laid down his life. It was not taken from him. His life was not taken from him. We need to understand that as Christians. He, his life was not taken from him. 
He laid his life down on our behalf. In a moment's notice, he could have called 10,000 angels to his side, but he did not because it was the love that he had for us, for you and me, and the redemption work that he was working out on that cross that, he, that held him there on that cross. But he laid his life down. He turned himself over. He did not resist arrest. Even when Peter wanted him to resist arrest. Remember that? He pulls the sword, cuts the guy's ear off, right? Kepha, Kepha. Put it away. Peter, put the sword away. He went before his accusers, and he was silent. Isaiah 53, 7 spoke of this. You'll see it on the screen. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, and he was led as the lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What? He didn't make a defense case. He was silent before his shears. He did not open his mouth. This was the original silence of the lamb. <laughs> right? <clears throat> and he let him strike him. He let them strike him down. He let, him, he let the enemy strike his heel. Don't think for a minute. He let them strike his heel. He could have stopped it with ease, like a, like a bug, like a Merritt Island mosquito. <laughs> Just boom. <laughs> right? Just boom. Gone. He let them do it. He let, that, let him strike let them strike him down. And in that enemy, in that the enemy struck his heel. But little did the enemy know that the event where he struck at his heel of the Messiah, that he came down and crushed the head of the serpent, that he literally had his head crushed. So the good news, the proto-evangelium in Genesis 3.15 is this. The enemy is under the foot... The enemy is under the foot. He will strike his heel. He will crush his head. The enemy is under the foot of the Savior. Amen? The picture of the enemy under the foot is the picture of complete victory. Throughout history, this has become emblematic of complete victory. Shout out to all Virginians tonight. The Commonwealth, not a state. There's five states that are not states. I don't know if you can name them, but there's five of them. They're not states. They're commonwealths. We'll have the answer to the quiz after the service tonight. Okay? <laughs> One of them is Virginia, the commonwealth of Virginia. And if you look at the seal of the commonwealth of Virginia, well, anyways, Virginia has a motto. This is the motto in Latin, Sic Semper Tyrannus. Okay, six semper tyrannis. Thus always to tyrants. Thus always to tyrants. And here is the emblem, and I have a picture of the Virginian flag. The conqueror with the foot upon the, literally, the head, the neck area of that foe. And so, six semper tyrannis. Thus always to tyrants. You can take that down. All the Virginians can get, get out their Commonwealth flags later. There is a picture in the book, and I'm almost done. I'm, ra this is, I'm wrapping it up now, okay? How many are ready to go home? Raise your hand. How many thought, how many right now said you've, you've gone too long and we're well aware of it? All right. This is the end. This is the wrap-up. There is a picture in the book of Joshua of five kings, five Canaanite kings that were defeated. There were 33 kings. 33 is the number of rebellion. 33 is a third, right? So 33 is the number of rebellion. So there, wouldn't you know it that God who brought the people into the land, which is bringing them back to Eden, you have to go back a couple messages, folks, he, conquered, he allowed them to conquer 33 kings to bring them into the land. Two on the east side, 
31 on the west side of the Jordan, 33 in total to conquer the land, five of them. The day that Joshua prayed the sun would stand still, five of them were captured. They put them in a cave. Joshua said, here's what you do. Put stones in front of the cave. Go and win your battle, and then come back and we'll deal with these five kings. So they came back to the cave after they won the battle. Here's what Joshua said in Joshua 10, verse 24. You'll see it on the screen. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and they put their feet on their necks. Brought them out of a cave and put their necks on, put their feet on their necks, symbolizing that absolute crushing victory. Now the battle was won. The battle of our Savior was won in the death, burial, and resurrection. When Jesus came out of a cave, with rocks in front of it, with a rock in front of it. <clears throat> Amen? And in that final stage of the work, crushing down on the head of that serpent, that Nakash, and thus signifying an emblematic format, the absolute and total victory that he has won for anyone who would call upon his name and receive him as Lord and Savior. Amen? And so here's the, here's the message of the Bible. Whoever calls upon Jesus Christ, the name of the Lord, will be saved, will be victorious. What's that? Yeah, you'll receive the victory that he won in his crushing blow to the head of the serpent. The victory that he won is given to all of his children, all of his sons and daughters, all of his seed. Amen. Now, let me finish it up with one more, there's one more verse, okay? You just said it, you were finished, right? There's always one more, right? There's always one more. Paul, in the book of Romans, does not, this is the, considered the, the, the this is the, dissertation of the gospel by Paul, really. You know, you, you want to read Romans. I mean, it's like, you want to know what the gospel is? You know, read Romans, you know. Only one place does he mention the devil. And it's at the very end of the book. In chapter 16, in the close, I mean, he's literally closing the letter. And he says, oh, by the way, yeah, the devil. The devil 1620, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. So the victory that Christ won in crushing the head of the serpent, he also gives to his followers his seed, and he will bring him under your feet. He will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Amen? Paul's one and only mention of the devil and it's about his defeat. It's about the defeat of the devil. To use the words of Martin Luther, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Amen? The enemy is put under the feet of Christians who stand in the power of his might with the whole armor of God firmly in place, trusting in the victory and the power of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. And so for these reasons, folks, there's hope for humanity.